Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host, Abby Martin. This is Robbie Martin. Welcome to our podcast, everybody. Today, I'm excited to introduce a guest I've been wanting to have on for quite a while to discuss the dysfunction of our media landscape, the propaganda sphere, and how the concept of fake news has always been a feature, not a bug, of capitalism and empire. Nolan Higdon is a member of Project Censored, a teacher of history and media studies, and the author of two books, The Anatomy of Fake News, A Critical News Education, and United States of Distraction, Media Manipulation, and Post-Truth America. You co-authored that book with Mickey Huff, the current director of Project Censored. Last year, I was honored to edit and narrate a documentary produced by Project Censored and based on Nolan's books called United States of Distraction, Fighting the Fake News Invasion, which everyone can watch for free on Project Censored's YouTube channel, which I'll link to in the SoundCloud description below. Nolan, thank you so much for joining us on Media Roots Radio. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. So Nolan, people may associate the term fake news with Donald Trump. Of course, he he popularized this term during his presidency. And as you mentioned in your book, uh, right out of the gate, pretty much, which I thought was interesting, in 2017, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary argued that it, quote, sees no need to even consider it for an entry in the dictionary as a separate term because it is, quote, self-explanatory and straightforward. But Nolan, given its long, complex history and exploitation by state and corporate actors, isn't it really difficult to define? Yeah, this was one of the major frustrations about uh, writing this book. I had this idea about uh, a decade ago to kind of chronicle the history of false information presented as news. And I couldn't get anyone to go along with um, sort of letting me write it as a dissertation or a book because uh, they didn't know exactly what I was talking about. So at some level, I was kind of excited that Donald Trump uh, reintroduced (laughs) the term. But um, I was quickly, you know, pretty pessimistic to say the least because everyone started to to sort of argue that fake news was something that only the Russians did or only Trump did or only right-wing trolls did, which, you know, is true at, at some level. These folks do engage in fake news. But I figured if we were really going to address this this problem facing democracy, you need to have a more like comprehensive understanding that it's all political parties, it's almost all nations, um, you know, it's all these different political figures. And if we look at it from that way, then we think can give a more responsible response. But just kind of narrowly pitching holding fake news to something that that's caused by Trump or the digital age is really kind of ignorant and short sighted. Nolan, you said uh, Trump reintroduced the concept of fake news. The first time I actually heard the phrase that I can remember was uh, on SNL via Norm Macdonald. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. If you, if you go back and look at most like old academic studies, they used fake news all the time about 10 years ago to talk about, yeah, Daily Show and um, Interesting. Norm Macdonald's SNL. <laughs> so, so I wonder who was the first person to use that in a joke context. Do you know like the earliest example someone used it in a real context where it was like to, to describe what they were seen as a f- actual fake news? I found the, the earliest examples from back in the late 19th century um, where, where people were arguing that these newspapers were publishing um, false content, particularly to get us into war, uh, us being the United States. Um, but quickly, it was actually weaponized by the state um, to say that people who were opposing the World War I were... Um, uh, perpetuating fake news. Um, as far as like the satire context, um, only I only know in the late sort of 20th century is the only places I could find it um, being used for things like the onion and stuff like that. 
But did they actually like? How would they say it back then during World War One? Would would writers and newspapers or government officials actually use the phrase "fake news" or did they use a a, a different wording for that? I found f- fake news used occasionally. More likely, it was false news um, was what they would say, including in like congressional hearings and things like that. I see. Yeah, I mean, fake news almost has a more like harder edge to it. Like in terms of you, like just the the way that the language is used, rather than just saying something is false news or inaccurate news, or are there any specific examples during World War One that you can sort of flesh out, or any other interesting historical examples from like pre World War Two or even around World War Two? Well, as far as like examples of um, actual uh, fake news, I mean there there's a litany of them. Um, you know, the the British Empire. Uh, sort of fabricated this story during World War One that the Germans were um, boiling down um, Allied soldiers and turning their bodies into soap and things like this. <laughs> and the U.S. quickly <laughs> adopted that afterward. Um, but a lot of the progressive folks who were out speaking out against the war um, with these newsletters, uh, those newsletters were called false news on the floor of Congress um, by various Congress members to kind of denounce that uh, if you were against the war, you were against the nation. So it was tantamount to treason. And during World War One, I, I mean, it does seem like that was, in essence, sort of started the framework of, well, actually, maybe this is not true, and maybe you can speak on this, but it does seem to be one of the first major American historical examples of actual legislation being put in to essentially stop journalists and regular people from protesting the war. Uh, well, it's it's one of the, the largest examples as far as um, its use and enforcement and uh, things like the Espionage Act, which which came out of World War One, are still being used today, most prominently from um, Barack Obama, um, back when liberals didn't care about norms. Um, but at the uh, beginning of the, the United States, um, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson passed a series of laws, the Sedition Acts, yes. um, Alien and Sedition Acts. And these laws were used to go after journalists who were criticizing the president for the way they were handling international affairs with France and, and Britain. Um, Cause there's kind of like this quasi war at the, at the time. Um, so yeah, there's a long history of, um, you know, trying to stifle the press anytime it tries to inform the public about the wrongdoings of the American empire. There's a long history of that. And generally they do it under the auspices of saying that the, the folks are uh, who are criticizing the war are somehow lying or perpetuating falsehoods. When usually that's not the case. Usually that's where the truth lies with the people who are accused of fake news in those circumstances. And it's so ironic in a way, Nolan. I mean, everybody talks about the Constitution and the De- Declaration of Independence and how the founding fathers believed in the free press, but yet the second president of the United States turns around and essentially pushes the Alien and Sedition Acts, which historically you can sh- you can see that George Washington actually stood up in favor of those as well and i just find that remarkable that you know we have this legacy of believing our country is this sort of beacon of hope freedom of the press freedom of expression and yet right after the founding of the nation with the second administration we get basically a, a kind of a proto patriot act kind of legislation yeah, it's a good it's a good lesson about even um, well intentioned people, and I think the the idea of the freedom of the press as, as part of the First Amendment was well intentioned. 
um, even the people who have those uh, strong beliefs about press, they, they engage in censorship. Censorship always seems like the right answer for the powerful um, to uh, sort of shake off any potential barriers to their, their power. Um, but what's interesting about, um, in, in looking back at like the case of Adams and we brought up World War I, is one of the things I outline in the book is censorship may sound sort of sexy and attractive. And I have to admit in the last couple of years, I've never been asked this many times in my life why censorship is not a potential solution, uh, which I sort of found shocking, but I realized a lot of our younger folks, I don't think I've been taught about the censorship. Besides censorship stifling free speech and being a a pathway to authoritarianism, I also point out in the book, censorship generally doesn't work. When you try and censor Mm -hmm. people, they generally find other ways to disseminate information. And instead, what you do is create like a chilling effect where you scare other people from participating in public discourse. Um, So this this long um, history of of fake news has also been followed by this long history of censorship, which I sort of chronicle in the solutions portion of the book as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the chilling effect is a, you know, it is something I think a lot of people ignore from this larger debate because um, that's what I sort of can see is one of the most dangerous things about it is people shying away from participating publicly because they don't want to be labeled X, Y, or Z. You know, even one good example I would say is for example, just the support of Julian Assange and his right to be free and to publish has now become this thing where there's been so many smears about him in the past several years that I think even people on the left are afraid to stand up for him. And uh, I see that kind of as an example of what you're describing um, as sort of a a chilling effect in that regard. Um, And it's really unfortunate. Yeah. And even today, people who are anti-empire, talk about imperialism, talk about U.S. foreign policy and the heinous war crimes our government commits in our name, are literally called Russian agents still. I mean, I'm called a Russian agent or imposter working for Putin still, even though I, you know, I did work for RT many years ago. But it's not just me. We know how this charge is alleged against anyone who's, quote unquote, like towing this line that essentially aids and abets Russia somehow. I, I still haven't figured that out. I mean, to me, it seems like Russia doesn't want to be sanctioned. But it brings me back to the Sedition and Alien Acts, which, you know, you saw Eugene Debs 100 years ago sentenced to 10 years in prison for simply speaking out against um, World War One. Yeah, we might not be thrown in prison, but we're still like labeled, essentially alleged to be treasonous and traitors um, in our current discourse. And it's just extremely damaging and disconcerting. Yeah, there used to be, um, you know, there, there used to be a long um, sort of history of, of resistance uh, to, to this sort of treatment of people who did talk out against the war. But I think one of the most um, at least chilling things in my lifetime, definitely the last 20 years or war on terror, is there doesn't seem to be a strong group of people who um, hold up principles. Like, you know, they're, they're, people who are against censorship or people who are for freedom of press or people who are for freedom of speech. Um, now it almost seems like people make determinations based on which party or political figure is advocating for said policy. And then they make a decision. Um, you know, I can remember um, being, you know, my teen years during the, the Bush administration and I saw uh, the right wing go nuts and sell out on things like torture and things like that. There was at least like some democratic rhetoric saying we're against torture we're for freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. We're against censorship. 
in the Trump era, though, that just went out the window. I mean, I watched like both these parties kind of shed any any principles, um, which I guess isn't shocking from politicians, but voters have, have shed those principles with them. Um, you know, the the silence on like uh, social media censorship that's going on or the trial of Julian Assange, which has threats to the freedom of the press, has been astounding. Yeah, I think during the Bush administration, that's when I obviously became awakened. I think a lot of people did with the complicity of the corporate media and selling the war and essentially uh, covering up the crimes of the Bush administration. And I think that's really led us to the state that we are today where people are distrustful in mainstream media and then they're just quite susceptible to other forms of propaganda and quote unquote fake news because we haven't been trained how to critically analyze media you know, that we're consuming on a daily basis. I wanted to take this back a little bit Nolan, and go through a timeline a little bit, just like you do in your book. I mean, you say that you can't really understand the concept of fake news without understanding first just the concept of news in general, what the fourth estate really means and what it should be doing in practice. I mean, this might just be uh, a simple concept for someone, but really quickly articulate what the foundation of news should be and how we got to this place, I mean, leading up to, I guess, like Rush Limbaugh and the rise of right-wing talk radio, because that convinced millions of people that these massive corporate conglomerates had this liberal bias against conservatives, which had this enormous cultural shift and essentially polarized our society to the point of no return. Yeah, we had, um, I mean, news is as old as, you know, humans. News comes in spoken form, written form, electronic uh, form, etc., um, we've always used news as a way to collect information, and um, particularly in a democracy, that is crucial because in democracy, as voters and as folks who can protest and organize, we're asked to, to take certain actions and make certain decisions, and we need information. And the Founding Fathers had a quite sober sense that the way you disseminate information is through the press. Um, good example is this previous summer, the post-George uh, Floyd murder protests. Uh, Most people never met George Floyd. Most people never went to his community. But thanks to coverage, including citizen journalists, people have some idea of what um, was going on, what happened, and they responded accordingly. So the founders, realizing the the importance of the press, uh, they put not only a freedom of the press, the only uh, um, non-public occupation which is protected, but they also subsidized the press with funding as well. And um, essentially what happened is every kind of city ended up with about two or three newspapers, newspapers. most of these newspapers, uh, you know, one would be for one political party and one for the other, but um, it was a lot more focused on local reporting. The president was almost kind of an afterthought um, for most of the 19th century. So that's kind of how um, American media developed in, in that sense. Um, and then um, it, it's, you know, it's not to say that it was like the glory days. There were like national divisive stories, like the Civil War was based on a lot of fake news against North versus South and, and things like that. Oh yeah, uh, I'm not a I'm not a Civil War denier, but just that there was a lot of like fake news. Um, I was just reading. The, I was just personally <laughs> reading a lot actually about um, an interesting incident where the Confederacy used Native American troops that allegedly scalped a bunch of Union soldiers, and it was sort of there was all this anti Native American outrage leveled. You know, the white men using Native Americans to kill Unionists, and it became this sort of outrageous sort of scaremongering thing. Um, I'm not a civil war denier either, but it's interesting to comb back through some of that, those, you know, that propaganda. Sorry for interrupting though. 
No, no, for sure. You're right, uh, right on. And, and Native Americans, I mean, are some of the, the biggest victims of, of fake news, to, to say the least. I, I start my book with um, Christopher Columbus as sort of the, the first fake news I could identify. He didn't know where he was. He, didn't, he lied about who he saw and he lied about what he experienced. <laughs> um, and, but, so, uh, and then someone additionally <laughs> lied and, and basically Washington Irving constructed a whole tale about him later that became sort of the, you know, set in stone version of what we know about Christopher Columbus. Yeah, Columbus is more like a, the way we remember Columbus is more like a 19th century person than the actual sort of uh, 15th century person that he, he was. Exactly. Um, so in the, in, the, in the 20th century, you know, communications developed in a way where you could have a lot more um, national reach and national media thanks to radio and television. And, um, you know, we, we put regulations in place. Uh, we put, you know, a, a fairness doctrine in that if you sort of talk about one side, you have to give equal time to the other. We, we limited how many outlets you could own in a particular market. Um, and then during the, the New Deal is really kind of a big game changer for the press, in my opinion. It, it's kind of looked over a lot. Um, the, the New Deal saw the federal government take over so many industries and put them toward uh, building the economy and then toward World War II. And the press was really terrified that they were going to get taken over as well. And so there was this sort of discussion about, well, what if we, you know, make this like a profession, we have like a code of ethics and we prove we're serving the public, then can we avoid like this government regulation? And um, what basically happened to journalism is it started to become more and more of a profession. Uh, you saw more of these like journalist, journalism schools develop in like universities and things like this. And after about 30 or 40 years of this, around the 1980s and 90s, journalism started to change. It, it went from, um, and Matt Taibbi does some good work on this, it went from working class stiffs who wanted to stick it to elites, uh, to elites who wanted to rub shoulders with other elites. And thanks to deregulation of the, the Reagan era, uh, which got rid of the fairness doctrine and the, the media, um, the limiting on media ownership, uh, you know, we went to about 80 corporations, uh, sorry, 50 companies controlling media in the 1980s down to about six. And there's mergers that could get us down even less. Um, and as a result, uh, and, and, um, Robert McChesney, the great media scholar, just pointed this out recently. These folks turn journalism into entertainment by cutting out journalism. So when we turn into the quote unquote news, there's no actual journalists on there for the most part. And they, they devalued um, what it means to be a journalist. So now you have people who are committed to journalism kind of running around trying to get like crowdsourcing or, or reaching out for funding to do this profession that used to be seen as like a bedrock of democracy. And that's kind of where I think this becomes really important is what we lose in that process. It's not just about journalists not getting, getting paid. It's about us as a democracy are making these decisions based on trivial commentary from like 24-hour news networks and we know almost nothing about the rest of the country. And it's ironic, especially in like a, this shift to quote unquote globalism, right? Uh, since the, the end of the Cold War, we know less and less about things overseas. They've cut overseas bureaus. These, these companies almost never cover what's going on overseas. I mean, Abby, you're one of the few people who covers empire um, as a way to kind of talk about America involvement overseas. And, you know, for all the great work you do, you can't be in every country all at once. Right. Um, so that's kind of where we, where we're left, I think. And, and it, in that vacuum where there's not journalism, there's a lot of commentary. A lot of it um, is to serve corporate needs and political party needs. And a lot of that information isn't true. Hence how fake news gets elevated by these supposed trusted news outlets. 
Right. And that's why the term mainstream media is such a misnomer because, you know, it's not mainstream. It doesn't represent the mainstream of society. In fact, the mainstream believes in things wildly divergent from what the corporate media peddles on a daily basis. You mentioned this 24-hour news cycle. People may be surprised to learn that that was born out of, I mean, the 9-11 era. You know, you had what, um, Anna Nicole Smith's <laughs> mixed with 9-11 fear porn. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just it's just insane that now this is the norm. News agencies that are just pushing 24-7 titillation, entertainment drivel, um, wrapped in what they call news. Um, and it really is so U.S.-centric, which I think is the most disgusting thing about it. You know, whenever there's an accident, it's how many Americans died. It's like, who fucking, I mean, how many people died? You know, like just this notion of American exceptionalism is pushed in every which way when you're watching corporate media. Nothing outside of the U.S. is of any importance, even though the U.S. is has a role to play in so many countries that are being subjugated and have, you know, like, for example... Venezuela, you know, whenever you hear about that, it's just complete Pentagon propaganda. Uh, but yeah, the rest of the world is just of no importance. Like, when's the last time you heard anything about India? You know, <laughs> like, and as much as we hear about Russia and China, how much do people actually know about the intricacies of those countries, about the political uh, formation of the government? I mean, how how these countries actually function and work, and what the populations are really like. It, it's just wild ignorance and you can't really decouple Americans from their sheer ignorance because I think they really are complicit. You know, a lot of Americans, if you were to pull them, they would say, yeah, we do think that we're the greatest country in the world. And we do think that we have a right to do all of these things around the world. Um, and that's really disturbing to me, Nolan, but quickly talk about, you know, cause it really fits into the Trump era today is this notion of a liberal conspiracy that this liberal media um, how did this originate? Because this is really the paradigm shift. And this is really where you have these differing realities where like, we are so polarized, we can't even agree on facts. Yeah, I know it'll uh, shock your audience, but uh, politicians lie. And um, there was these sort of political uh, propaganda apparatuses I talk about where political parties worked with PR firms to, to develop these basically messaging strategies to manipulate the public. And, you know, Lee Atwater was one of the, the brilliant folks who was behind this. Um, but there, there's, there's other characters in there I talk about in the book. But, but essentially what Atwater understood is that if people hear the same thing over and over again from multiple uh, sources, uh, they start to conflate familiarity with veracity. And ironically, this ends up being one of the big problems with the internet, but Atwater was in the pre-internet days. And um, so he kind of organized the Republican Party to have things like message of the day and, um, you know, things like this to perpetuate these falsehoods. He would do these political tricks. And then when the press would call out the right wing, he sort of brilliantly was, was part of this um, uh, thing that came, sorry, reweaponized this phrase from the Nixon administration, which was liberal media. That the reason why so many Americans are liberal is not because liberal makes sense or because they like it. It's because they're manipulated by the news media. Really, our message of the day, our tricks are, are you know, the truth. Um, Roger Ailes was a big part of this as well. And, um, you know, liberal media quickly got conflated with basically what became fake news, which is if mm -hmm. we're calling it liberal media, it must be false. But th that was never proven um, in that sense. Um, but it, it turned out to be really good um, for ratings. Um, you know, you talked about Rush Limbaugh earlier. Rush Limbaugh was, you know, a genius of this. 
he created a, a caricature of Democrats and liberals and progressives that scared his audience. And he made them feel, his audience, like they were the good guys. And so you keep perpetuating them with this myth, you're the good guy and they're the bad guys. Uh, 24-hour news would adopt this first with um, Fox and then MSNBC and CNN would, would follow shortly thereafter. Um, and so that that's kind of where this this idea developed. But it um, the how it defines the Trump era is really crucial, in my opinion, which is if you go back to 2014, 24-hour news audiences were dying. They were dead. Um, there was only about, you know, collectively in primetime, I think it was about 2.8 million viewers they were getting a night. Trump saved the 24-hour news network because they used the same thing Limbaugh had done against liberals, MSNBC did against Trump. We're the resistance, Trump's the bad guy, tune in, figure out why you're good and why he's bad. And primetime audiences jumped up to 4.7 million viewers. And so now we're in this weird space where MSNBC, you can tell they're afraid to criticize Biden because they know they, they risk losing that audience who was just there for basically the DNC porn, right? To tell, get told how great you are. Um, and so the, the news, what we call the news, doesn't really do any journalism. It just serves these, these hyper-partisan narratives, um, you know, which Fox had done for, for years before. So I think that's kind of a way to understand um, the media landscape, at least in the corporate media during the Trump era. For sure. Yeah, it is a it is a strange thing how it's evolved. I mean, I remember even when CNN uh, towards the I guess I would say the last year and a half of the Obama presidency actually kind of started to pivot against him in certain regards with Russia and Syria. And we won't even I don't even see that level of nuance I, to call it even nuance is pretty silly, but I've, I, I completely agree with you. I see CNN and MSNBC moving forward, being afraid to criticize the current administration and essentially just going headfirst into becoming basically the partisan opposite of Fox News. It seems like they've pretty clearly established themselves as that over the last several years. You mentioned the fairness doctrine earlier, Nolan, and I feel that a lot of people are either too young who pay attention to politics now to remember that happening. And even someone like myself, I'm almost 40 years old. I don't really understand the intricacies of that, even though the fairness doctrine in retrospect seems extremely limited and somewhat controlling. Describe some of the ways in which the fairness doctrine actually kept a lid, if it did at all, maybe you disagree with that, kept a lid on this explosion of partisan propaganda that we see all over the media landscape now. If there was some positive merit to it, just technically speaking, did the fairness doctrine only apply to broadcast and TV, or does it also apply to print? Because it seems like print hasn't really changed a whole lot over the past hundred years, but broadcasting, you know, has drastically changed since it became a form of news. So I know that just threw a lot of stuff at you, but break that down a little bit for our audience. For sure. Uh, yeah, I'll answer the last question first. So uh, it did apply to all news media. And then in the 1970s, the Supreme Court um, uh, argued that it no longer needed to apply to newspapers because there was enough newspapers to justify that there was already a diversity of views and you didn't need the fairness doctrine. Um, and then in the 1980s, uh, Reagan stopped enforcing the fairness doctrine and finally officially died under the Obama administration. Um, to your, your other point, I think is spot on. Uh, I'm not one of those people who looks back to the past and says, man, we had it really right in the 1970s. We could just get back there. Uh, news media would be fine. I mean, let's, let's be honest. We have those safeguards in place. The news media and the political class lied us into Vietnam and maintained that lie at the expense of hundreds of thousands, not millions of lives. 
However, uh, to your to your point, which I think is right, it, d- it did offer um, some other voices in there. So you couldn't have like a Fox News, at least like after Sean Hannity's show was over, you'd have to have like Rachel Maddow on for an hour, which, you know, I guess it's like being the nicest guy in prison. But at least you'd have something else um, in there uh, to for the two to compete. Um, but we don't even have that anymore. I mean, now you can literally customize uh, for yourself and your internet experience will customize for you. Uh, a news experience that confirms every single belief you have. And at least uh, something like a fairness doctrine might get you to have to confront other views. We don't even have that. It's so interesting to think of how the fairness doctrine was playing out when it was still enforced, because it does seem like news networks were like, yeah, we're going to have a conservative guy on and then we're going to have a liberal guy on. It does seem like there's some illustration of that sort of playing out in I guess the last, you know, not the last 20 years, but before that, uh, like in the 90s and the 80s, even to some degree, we've completely gotten away from that. But part of me wonders if these Silicon Valley companies are going to implement something similar to it in the sense where it's like we're going to implement an algorithmic version of the fairness doctrine. I don't know if that's going to happen at all. You know, they're already playing with algorithms in a lot of different ways, and we're going to go into that a little bit later. Just in general, Nolan, the Clinton era itself seems to also mark a drastic shift in not just corporate control of our media landscape, dwindling the diversity of ownership, but also a drastic shift into political actors and well-funded opinion makers flooding our landscapes with disinformation and propaganda. And that's not even mentioning the fact that corporations like pharmaceutical companies were also, you know, for the first time ever, allowed to advertise directly to consumers. Um do you see the Clinton era as marking a, a drastic shift or do you just see it as more of a stepping stone in terms of the way the media landscape has changed? Oh, I see. I see the, the Clinton era as a, a drastic shift, not just in terms of, of media. Um, I, I think the, the lessons of the post-Cold War um, that Americans took were, you know, really naive, um, like that this was actually a contest between capitalism and communism and that um, unfettered capitalism is what won the quote unquote cold war. And so we need to deliver it not only to ourselves, but everywhere else through force. I mean, that naivete, um, is something we're still living with the results of today. I mean, look at just you know, what happened during this, this pandemic, right? We, we bail out wealthy corporations because what's good for the market is good for the people. But we don't bail out the people, right? Um, but the, having said all that in that context is in which the internet became in used in home and commercially. And so they didn't put any regulations on it. They, they didn't really put any tax burden on the internet. Um, you know, the famous uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act absolves these corporations from what's published on their platforms. And es- essentially, uh, they created this new robber baron class that we're now kind of dealing with. And I, this, something that I think is important to mention at, at this point applies to 24-hour news that I think we could also apply to digital spaces, which is we, uh, those of us who are interested in democracy and interested in journalism and truth, we come at uh, 24-hour news networks and the internet in a certain way. However, 24-hour news networks, their job is to build audiences and raise revenue. They're not there uh, to care about how the, the election turns out or whether or not journalistic ethics are being held up. Social media companies, they're there to maximize audiences by collecting as much data as possible that they can sell to advertisers. They're not there to promote democracy. They're not there to promote truth. All of these companies look at this fake news issue, the rise of Trump, the, the you know failures of democracy as simply a PR issue. 
Um, the 24-hour news networks, they don't want to take blame, right? This, if democracy is failing, it's not their fault. They're the quote-unquote resistance. Um, social media, no, we're doing everything we can to foster democracy and, and curtail fake news. Um, but let's just, let's just say in the case of uh, Silicon Valley that they do mean what they say and they do care about these things. It's not clear they have the know-how or the resources to actually accomplish it. Uh, we, we put the, our faith in these companies for some reason, like there's some gods who have thoughts and resources that we can't imagine who can accomplish these greater goals of delivering democracy to the world. It's just simply not true. There's no evidence to back that up. And I think we need to come at these corporations with a more sober sense that they are just for-profit companies. They're not some great benevolent deliverer of democracy. Right. Like the whole Google uh, motto, don't be evil, is just very bizarre and Orwellian looking back at it, considering that they literally have curated our reality. You know, like these tech companies, before there was even a law mandating them to do so, they changed the algorithms. We all know what happened next is that all these websites, including organizations like Project Censored, got pushed to the wayside. You know, I mean, you have to go through pages and pages of search results to really find the actual truth behind the headlines that are pushed today. Um, you mentioned the 24-hour news cycle. I find it really fascinating as well. And it, uh, you know, you look at the Les Moonves quote about Trump's horrible for the country, but great for CBS, the CEO of CBS. You see them kind of all flailing. It's like, what? Yeah, they they all hate Trump, but how are they going to keep that going? How are they going to keep the machine, you know, the gears spinning once Trump leaves? It was their biggest cash cow, you know, and it's just so surreal. Like anyone who's watched the news for the last four years sees how surreal it is. It's not only US centric, it was Trump centric. It was Trump television. You know, it, it was literally everything he said, everything he did, every press conference he gave. I mean, I just kept saying, like, why are you just filming every single speech that he gives, every single tweet that he makes, every single, like, press conference that goes on for hours and hours and hours? Just stop fucking filming it. But they just couldn't help themselves because they saw the money rolling in, Nolan. Um, and you mentioned also, like, the liberal conservative, the fairness doctrine that was implemented before. And it kind of reminds me of that Chomsky quote that said, you know, the smart way to keep people passive and obedient is to strictly limit the spectrum of acceptable opinion, but allow very lively debate within that spectrum. And it just goes to show you that like, even though you pretended to have a diversity of opinion with a liberal and a conservative, they were still representing like the ruling class, still representing, you know, the orthodoxy of capitalism and US empire and imperialism. And you're never going to feature like communists or, you know, anarchists uh, on these networks, even with something like the fairness doctrine. Yeah, I know. When, when <clears throat> Joe Biden's coming to office and he says, I'm going to work across the aisle. It's like, nothing scares me more than that. It's like, I've seen you work across the aisle for 40 <laughs> plus years. Like, don't right. do that. Um, but to, to your, your point about um, uh, Trump and what they're going to do, I mean, I have to imagine they're salivating. They hope Trump keeps, whether he does or not, keeps talking about running in 2024, gets a podcast, some, I mean, he's like just, there, there's such a toxic relationship between like the, the liberal uh, 24 hour news networks and Trump because he just keeps scaring liberal audiences and they keep using it to, to keep the audience coming back. And like you said, they, they can't get rid of him. Biden is, you know, Biden's going to be boring um, to, to say the least, probably boring yeah. old like neoliberal exploitation where Trump was like, you know, the sensationalistic uh, exploitation. So it's going to be, um, I think, a, a tough road. But I, I bet you they're pretty excited if uh, Trump keeps talking about 2024. Yeah. And if Don Trump Jr. 
dares to run oh, or Ivanka, Jesus. which will be a hilarious failure, but it would just be, it would be great. I mean, I would love to see them crash and burn. Uh, really quickly about the Telecommunications Act. I think everyone kind of knows in the periphery that like Clinton oversaw this consolidation of the media, but you mentioned 50 corporations going down to six. And of course, we're looking at these mega mergers that we can even go down to like four or three multinational corporations that are controlling essentially everything that we see here and read. But what was happening at the time that Clinton did this? I mean, how did he justify this measure that essentially like destroyed our ability to have this diversification? And how do you explain to people who don't really understand like how everything is really funneled through the same entities because they see more media than ever? You know, I guess that's how capitalism works. You see like hundreds of media outlets. Um, but like you said, the true journalistic outlets are the ones who are begging for funds on GoFundMe. But how do you explain to someone like Vice, Daily Beast, it's all kind of spawns off of these multinational conglomerates that are the uh, hegemonic forces of these big six corporations? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a big, big question, but to the, I'll start with the 90s portion of it. Um, you know, at, the, at that time, the, the Democrats had gone through a series of losses. You know, we, we have to remember how powerful the Democratic Party was. You know, they kept winning like every election from 1932. And even Eisenhower uh, was basically like a liberal president by today's standards. I mean, he's even probably left of like uh, the Democratic Party at this point. Um, and they controlled Congress all the way from the 1930s until the 1980s. They were slowly losing seats into the the post 1980s and they lost the uh, three elections in the row starting in 1980 and um bill clinton was part of this democratic leadership council with um donna brazil and hillary clinton and later on debbie wasserman schultz and these folks argued that hey look the way you win elections is by getting rid of all that um social justice uh you know government intervention stuff that's all old you know we got to be more like triangulation we have to appeal to the center um, to move the agenda forward. And basically what it amounted to is being more friendly to corporations. You can go back and read all these, these books on this nonsense, right? And um, they published a series of books and this stuff, but uh, they ended up doing this. Clinton uh, spoke like a liberal on the campaign trail and then governed like a Republican. Um, basically, you know, he would delivered what Reagan couldn't. Reagan could say all this crazy right-wing stuff and get some of it accomplished, but he had a Democratic Congress to deal with. Clinton, you know, was dealing with the Republican Congress and was able to get it passed. Um, you know, things like welfare reform or DOMA, or the crime bill, um, Communications Decency Act, the repeal of Glass-Steagall, I could go on. And so in, in that way, uh, Clinton moved the party right. And since then, the Democratic Party have always been chasing this Republican unicorn, they think there's these Republican voters who just haven't figured out they want to be Democrats yet. But if we go just a little little <laughs> further right, they'll get there. <laughs> and so the party keeps moving further and further right. And it's that's why you see right now, like the leadership of the Republican Party, the average age is about 55, and the average age of the Democratic Party is 73, because the Democrats kicked out all those potential progressives who would have been yeah. there like 20, 30 years ago. Um, so that's kind of what happened in in um, that era. And uh, in the post-Cold War era, you, you lost a lot of the communist boogeyman. And so what news outlets like, again, Limbaugh and Fox and others tried and succeeded at was instead of making another country or ideology the boogeyman, make it the opposite political party. Um, and if you can remember during the, the 1990s, um, I was a big wrestling fan, pro wrestling fan, judge me. 
<laughs> and um, one, of the, one of the guys who did pro wrestling was uh, Eric Bischoff, who ran WCW. And he says, um, look, what I did for pro wrestling is what they do in news today. You create a boogeyman, you make the audience feel like they're good, so they cheer you on, and they keep coming back, and the story never ends. And so that's essentially what media transitioned to. Well, there's, again, not a lot of space in there for journalism or facts. It's a lot more about attacking the enemy. And that's kind of how media transition. If you remember back, we always remember the Monica Lewinsky scandal with Bill Clinton. But he was tried on so many charges for so many like fake scandals. Remember like the Vince Foster stuff and um, Whitewater and all mm -hmm. these scandals. Um, it, was, it was a sign the Republicans were basically willing to make things up to go after Clinton, which ironically was probably the you know, most successful Republican president they'd ever had at that point. Um, <laughs> yeah, you'd and, wonder and that's why where, they were going after him so hard. He seemed like a perfect vehicle <laughs> to push through all the deregulation. Yeah. And, you know, that's what, you know, the Democrats did against Trump with the Russia nonsense. And it looks like this is what Republicans are going to do against Biden with like the China nonsense. And, you know, the cycle will perpetuate. The media almost became savvy in the sense where you have outlets like Vice and the Daily Beast making imperial propaganda like more appealing to hipsters and millennials and stuff like that and like the Gen Xers. But again, like how do you explain to people that that is just the same kind of propaganda from these Beltway publications like the New York Times and the Washington Post except branded differently and again, all owned by these same corporate conglomerates because it all goes back to the big six um, even though you have way more choices today to consume the news. Yeah, uh, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book, and I've long been an advocate for this, is that we really have to teach our public um, critical media literacy skills that everything, there is no such thing as like neutral media. All media you approach has a message. It's packaged in a certain way. Um, and like you said, just because it's packaged to look like it's, you know, sexy to hipsters doesn't mean it cannot be uh, empire propaganda. And so figuring out how to turn your brain on, you know, back in the 80s, they used to talk about like talking back to your television. Um, you always need to like talk back to your screen, like ask questions, <laughs> investigate, don't just take the messages um, in a passive sense. And, and closely related to, to what you're saying there, I think is worth bringing up here. As I'm, I'm thinking about, um, you know, going on like a national conquest to get rid of the op-ed. Um, it, ser it served a purpose uh, decades ago. You, you would be in a limited media market and you'd need an op-ed that would give you a, a perspective you wouldn't hear otherwise. Now everybody has an opinion. We hear way too many opinions and not enough actual journalism. So I think we need to just cut out the op-eds for like 50 years and see where we're at. <laughs> it would be interesting to see what an idealistic media landscape would even look like now i mean i feel like i've been in this toxic like cloud for so long it's probably distorted even my perception of what's actually good for society at this point it, it would be i mean i would have to really sit and reflect on that <laughs> yeah it would be i mean I don't think the media should necessarily tell you, um, you know, what's what's good or bad. They should try and eliminate those value judgments, but they should make you aware of what's going on, um, make you kind of attuned to the, the stories that are out there, especially the stories from people who are um, not being heard. And I, I think, you know, I, I think a media landscape like that would be beneficial um, as opposed to what we have, which is where people kind of tune in or read to be confirmed. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because like, there's so much of it mixed together with just marketing. I mean, let's just talk about something that's rather inconsequential, just like movie reviews. I mean, 
that whole system is basically access-based journalism who write positive reviews for a lot of movies that they get free tickets for. And that's just sort of normalized now. Um, and that plays out on a lot of different levels. You could extrapolate that concept out outward to just how much marketing is indistinguishable from some of this quote-unquote opinion-making news. You know, it's like a lot of it is just some kind of marketing campaign channeled through an editorial, you know, whether it's from a think tank or a particular lobbying group. I'm not talking about just corporations selling products, but so I think more people need to see it that way and realize that they're being worked, um, you know, uh, often when they're reading other people's opinions, quote unquote opinions. Right. I wanted to jump in there really quickly. This is one of the most fascinating aspects of corporate media to me is that bizarre concept of neutrality that just does not exist. You know, and people are like, oh, well, you're not a journalist, you're an activist. And it's like, well, I wear my opinion on my sleeve. I'd much rather show and reveal what I'm doing and what I'm advocating for instead of couching an opinion with this appeal to authority uh, that my brother is talking about, where you have, quote unquote, experts that are all from think tanks funded by corporations, you know, in in these publications that you're reading. And you're like, wait, this is not neutral at all. This is a clear advocacy of something uh, you just had to read between the lines. But it's it's super sinister. You know, it, a lot of that stuff, you have to recognize it for what it is, like fluff or what uh, Project Censored has long called like junk food news. Um, you know, I've always been an advocate of some of the easy things you can cut out of your media diet. Um, besides op-eds. Uh, you don't need movie reviews. You don't really need sports. You can just check the <laughs> score. Um, you don't need weather. You can go outside. Um, a lot of that stuff, you know, you can kind of cut out. That's a waste of um, uh, time and space. Um, but to your, to your point about experts, one of the things I you know often talk about is who's treated as a newsworthy source. Um, a lot of times it's a very limited class of experts, which is, you know, odd because experts get things wrong all the time. Um, you know, if you look at uh, a real, a real, first of all, a real economist will never tell you what's going to happen. They'll only tell you what did happen. Um, anybody who, who pretends to predict the future is not being an economist. Um, and you can see that happening with like the 08 collapse, for example. But um, more recently, like the polling of 2020 to me is the big story of this election. Um, not only was it wrong as it was in, in 2016, mm -hmm. This was like mega off and a lot of people made a ton of money, like all the fundraising that went in in like South Carolina Senate race off these false polls that ended up being wrong or the supposed close race in Kentucky that wasn't or the landslide of the Democrats in the House that wasn't and Biden's landslide, which wasn't. Um, all that stuff was wrong. Those pollsters are, are experts. They're wrong. The people who use them, the expert class in media were wrong. Uh, the fundraising class who used it were, were wrong. Um, you know, there's a kind of a shining example. I think we can all really wrap our minds around about what happens when we have a limited class of people who are treated as the only sources to define our media and shape our opinions. That was one of the funniest things about 2020 is is how much people got it wrong again. It's like, did you not learn anything from 2016, especially looking at the Nate Silvers of the world as these sages who are, you know, reading our future. And it, it was just so funny to me because I was looking at polls within some of these battleground states and they were looking very concerning, like actual trends that were aside from these hyped up, 
you know, pollster models that ended up being just completely irrelevant. But like actual, you know, Latino votes flipping, you know, astronomically for Trump and some of these strongholds like on the border. So things like that, I just knew going into it, I was like, this is going to be way closer than expected. And in fact, my brother and I were calling it for Trump almost because without COVID, I think we can agree that Trump would have won. Um, Biden only had it within striking distance because of this pandemic and Trump's abysmal failure to manage it. But it's just unbelievable that people continue to take the Nate Silvers of the world seriously. And then just, again, no accountability, you know, no accountability for how did we get this so wrong? And of course, punching left, Nolan, like they always do, they punch left. Well, yeah, the, uh, I mean, it's true. And there's that expert opinion, right? That demographics are, are destiny is the thing they've been holding on to. Um, since 08, right? That if we just follow the demographic trends as if you're a certain identity or racial group, you'll never change your mind and evidence will never change your vote. Um, and so they, they've kind of doubled down on that. They use that in their polling data. But as you point out, you know, if in 2020, there were some things like the, the change in like the Latinx voters or um, black young voters, uh, some of which shifted to Trump and increase in Trump voters. These were things that went against the, that conventional wisdom. But again, it's right back to same old demographics or destiny conversations with the making of the, the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like they, they learn nothing from that in that sense. And as far as the, the punching left, you know, this is one of the another kind of interesting facet of 2020, which is kind of the, the keep left. Keep talking. I'm going to go grab left. my charger, but keep, keep going. The progressive left and uh, Democratic Party were both... Um, Correct in a, in a way, in that uh, both of them won. It was around policy, though. If you were generally for like universal health care, whether you were a progressive or a centrist, that message won. Um, so a little more nuance, I think, it could help um, some of that kind of punch left mentality as well. The Bush era also marked sort of a, let's say, an evolution in the way that the media worked with government and spread propaganda. At least, I mean, there were probably other eras of the media that resembled it in tone and and feel and vibe. I would imagine maybe even some aspects of the 70s, maybe some aspects of the 50s felt similar. But, you know, with the advent of the Internet and several 24-hour news channels like Fox News, um, you know, like CNN working in conjunction with each other, it just amp things up. Then we had people like Judith Miller, uh, you know, of course, of the New York Times and many others who were selling the Iraq war to the people, as well as these, this larger war on terror narrative. And, you know, you had the incessant fear of continuing terrorist attacks um, after 9-11 and the 2001 anthrax attacks. Like, how bad do you think this shifted things uh, permanently and set things in stone? In essence, what psychological impact um, do you think that this had moving forward uh, in terms of normalizing the state of permanent war, uh, just in terms of the way that people had been fed this propaganda. Because, you know, before it seemed like the media actually needed to individually sell wars to some degree. Um, but after 9-11, uh, would you, I, I don't know, do you agree with that idea that the psychological impact might have been so profound that they don't even really need to sell individual wars anymore? And that the media maybe has an easier job uh, I don't know. What are your What are your thoughts on that? I would, um, yeah, I would, con- I would concur that uh, the the psychological impact of the the pro war propaganda from the war on terror has uh, been um, hugely influential. And just to, and I think you were making this point, but to to say it again, 
the fact that we don't even really discuss what our country is doing in the so-called war on terror overseas right now is an illustration of how much it's just expected that we support it. Yeah. To come out would be, you know, would be crazy. Um, and so there's years not even on, really it's, a, it's a discourse about what's going on. Like Obama's, you know, drone policy. Uh, I can remember bringing that up at public talks and rooms of liberals would just kind of stare at me blankly. Like, who are you? Where, where did you fabricate these drone strikes? Because <laughs> uh, they couldn't even believe that I would, you know, criticize or make up such a thing. Um, and so um, I, I think it it uh, comes down to that. And this, this gets to, um, you brought up Judith Miller. One of the things that I try and help people understand and i think this is something to focus on at a personal level but also when you're going through news media is really the importance of of credibility you know f- folks like um who lied in the 24-hour news networks to get us into war uh those folks who are still in media uh they've they've lost credibility with me i would never go back and trust them um credibility is hugely hugely important um, and I look at, at folks like the Lincoln Project, a lot of those people who liberals are now like we're rallying around, like, let's get them money and get Biden in office. It's like, those are a lot of people lied you into war um, during the war on terror. Have you forgotten that? You know, these were these are those folks. Um, similarly, like when you turn on MSNBC, there's like Brian Williams staring me back in the face. I'm like, you lied about a helicopter attack. Mm-hmm. Like you have no credibility with me, you know? So I think that one of the way you can help folks to kind of deconstruct uh, these um, news outlets is to say like, only kind of trust people who are right time and time again and are willing to go places that other journalists are not. Like I respect the journalists who stand their ground where the facts lead them, even if it's like an unpopular opinion, because, you know, five, 10, 15 years down the line, they're the people that I remember and trust. I don't go back and remember the people who kind of jumped on the popular bandwagon. Right. And like following the journalists that you trust instead of blindly following the outlets that they may represent, you know, you can pick and choose which journalists you feel that they've been truth tellers, you know, and like you said, following the facts where they may lead, even if that's not a popular thing. Another really important facet of this is what kind of corporations are sponsoring um, these media institutions, you know, because it's it's not just like, okay, the corporate media conglomerates that are the big entities that that have millions of offshoots of all these outlets, it's the fact that they are subsidized and sponsored by advertising companies. And what do those advertising companies represent? War contractors, big oil, banks, pharmaceutical industries. You mentioned in America, we're actually one of two countries in the world that allows direct-to-consumer advertising with big pharma um, to our children, which is another What's the safeguard. other country? Do you remember? Um, New Zealand, oddly enough. So you talked about how other countries had like better safeguards to help navigate their populations sort through the digital media age. And how did we not have that? And what did that do to American society? In other countries had, you know, many of the same kind of regulations we talked about in the the 20th century um, at some level. Uh, But the the big game changer was a lot of other countries, especially in Europe and and Asia, they, they took media very seriously about 30 or 40 years ago. They recognized that media is hugely influential. We spend most of our day um, getting hit with media messages. You think about all the billboards and advertisements and screens and songs, et cetera, that you encounter. And so for the most part, they didn't want to teach you good media versus bad media, but they want to say like, you know, here's what media does. Here's how it operates. Here's what it can, how it can influence and so I try to teach generations of students how to um, analyze that content, how to think about that content, how to you know responsibly use that content and produce it. 
We didn't do anything like that in the United States. Um, the United States just dropped this like media bomb. It said, just share, take pictures, make stuff, listen to this, watch that. And um, as a result, you know, we have a lot of folks who, who don't, um, who don't recognize some of the dangers uh, that with these products or how they're being influenced in negative ways with these products. Um, so you talked about like the, the funders of, of corporate media. Um, it it kind of works in, in two ways. Uh, you, you can't piss off the advertisers. So you don't cover certain content that's going to make the advertisers mad or you lose your job. And there are examples of this. You can go back to like Monsanto and Florida mm -hmm. and things like this, where people did go against funders and they did lose their job. So it has happened. Um, but it also happens in other ways that some of those companies are tied to political parties um, who have political interests. And so they don't want certain voices or certain perspectives on their programs. Um, there's an MSNBC employee who just came out this year who said that uh, there was a list of which Democratic primary candidates were allowed to be on programs versus ones that were not. And so they were not allowed wow. to invite certain primary ones on there. And so, and that came from the, the head of uh, the top of MSNBC. And, and so those, those are ways in which you get a limited scope and it's framed, but you get the illusion that you have um, access to this information. Mm -hmm. um, and, and something, you know, similar happens, as I mentioned before, um, on the internet as well. Um, the internet is driven by funders, people who want your money. And so uh, these companies give you content that they think will draw your attention to these advertisements. And so we have the illusion of sitting down with like boundless information. Um, but in reality, we get a very limited set of information. Yeah. And it's also kind of scary to think that there is a profit motive in, in just in terms of algorithmically hitting us in the reptile brain with stuff like the YouTube algorithm. Like there's actual plenty of data out there to suggest that YouTube algorithms and the way that they operate are partly responsible for boosting things like QAnon and other, you know, hysterical conspiracy narratives like that. We're, let's get into this, the, the idea of the Silicon Valley um, censorship thumb on the scales a little bit towards the end of this discussion. But I wanted to bring up something that was mentioned in the documentary where I think it might have been Aaron Good who brought this up. And I wanted to know if you had a comment on this, that he says in Indonesia in 1965, the situation there where basically a half a million to two million people were murdered was described as a gleam of light uh, <laughs> by the New York Times. And a guy named Ralph McGeehy, McGeehy? McGeehy, I, I don't know how to pronounce a CIA defector who wrote a memoir, uh, says that about Indonesia, his comment on what the news did with Indonesia was, today's fake news is tomorrow's fake history. That concept is eerie, uh, but is obviously true uh, when you just sit back and think about it for a second. But this is essentially a variant of what Karl Rove said about creating new realities. Um, it, it sort of makes one think of how many other events in history, not just in our lifetimes, but for like the last 100 years of American history, fall into this category of implanted fake news that just becomes our now, you know, sort of status quo historical narrative. And uh, I guess just from your perspective, like what's just like a random thing that you think is just something that people have a completely false understanding about in the last hundred years of American history, pulling out something maybe even random um, that you think was initially fake news that just become history now 
for most people? It's, it's, it's usually, um, you know, it's usually kind of uh, smaller events. You know, Mickey, Mickey Huff and I have, um, you know, recently been working on this. We've been looking at the ways in which textbooks mirror um, inaccurate, inf- inaccurate news information um, from the time period in which they're talking about. And we sort of hypothesize that news literacy is not only not taught to, to most students, this includes like, you know, historians. And we're afraid that the professional class of historians are sort of doing like the knee jerk, you know, turn to the trusted New York Times or Washington Post, which, which do have good journalists employed there, but do also produce problematic and, and false narratives. And so I think that the, the um, you know, kind of thesis that uh, today's fake news becomes tomorrow fake history um, we've been able to to document. Now we did it specifically looking at um, the war on terror, the way that some of these like counter stories uh, that were in alternative press disappear from the the history um, in that. But as far as like a an, an example um, from history, I think it becomes like these like larger kind of like shifting narratives like that for example like the the reagan revolution is one that always gets me like ronald reagan just started talking about um dismantling government and all of a sudden everybody jumped on board and he won everyone was behind it and he kept winning elections that's not really how it happened i mean there was a there was a lack of faith in government in the 1970s reagan had ran you know before um there was also a shift uh rightward amongst like the jimmy carter administration uh, that's often left out of like the, these history books in that sense. And so y- you lose a lot of those kind of narratives uh, or sorry, lose a lot of those stories when you have these, these like larger narratives in that sense. Um, so if that answers your question, but that would be like an example that, that comes to mind for me. Um, interestingly. Yeah. When you're looking at just like pro empire mythos that has been perpetrated throughout history, you know, like, dropping of two nuclear bombs, you know, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki was somehow peddled as something that was necessary to end the war. And that's what we were all taught in history class. And um, also to save lives. Education. Also to save lives. Don't forget to save lives. We know how false that is, right? Or you can look at something like Rosa Parks, something that a person who is glorified as sparking an entire civil rights movement when really she was doing what she was doing for months. This was part of a militant organized struggle that involved hundreds of people. You know, it wasn't just one person that randomly sparked off this thing. And I think it's in part to depoliticize the masses, right? To make it seem like, oh, revolutions just happen with just a, a spark that can happen just randomly. Um, and removing the context. And and that's another thing that Chomsky talks about is like the concision of corporate media, how you have to have everything very concise because you have to speak between commercial breaks and you can never explain actual crucial context behind any of these things, like analysis that is necessary in order to really understand a historical event or something as complicated as Israel-Palestine, you know, that's not really even complicated at all. But but when you're approached with the subject and with corporate media, it's just like it's approached as if they're just two separate countries that are just forever at war. Um, so it's this kind of thing that is a huge detriment as well in terms of critical media literacy. Yeah, um, getting, yeah, the, the, over, um, the oversimplification, I mean, that's been a kind of long problem of historical narratives. Um, and I, I think it, it fits the kind of desire of like the expert class. Um, 
you know, Hofstetter was writing in the mid 1960s about how change comes from like educated elites who make bright decisions. Um, but, but really historically, as you just pointed out with like Rosa Parks, it, it's not a uh, woman sitting on a bus randomly. It's a trained activist planning to do something uh, to then build a movement uh, behind it, to put pressure on the political class, to pass certain legislation and do certain things. With, without that kind of um, sophisticated understanding of how change occurs, you get people who only show up to the ballot box every four years and are angry nothing changes, where it should be, you know, who am I going to vote for that I can protest, agitate, and annoy to get to do what I want, rather than like, you know, who am I going to vote for that I want to be friends with? Um, so this, uh, you know, like fetishization of these these politicians um, is not a way that change is created. You want to elect them into office and then annoy the hell out of them until <laughs> you get what you want. Most people just seem to want to coddle politicians and act like they're their friends basically and be like oh they're they seem so cool they're on tiktok they're streaming on twitch um but let's go back to this idea of uh what obama managed to do um just sort of going through all the different sort of eras of how this propaganda model shifted because i think what the obama era did was sort of ingenious and it takes on a different character than the bush era and the clinton era um you know, he did it not just with the hip press, so to speak, like Vice, what Abby mentioned earlier, and places like the Daily Beast and BuzzFeed, but also sort of celebrity culture, pop culture, Hollywood. And it's sort of rather impressive what he was able to pull off. I mean, Clinton, of course, you know, played saxophone live at the Apollo and, and things like that. So there was some of that going on back then. But what Obama did um, somehow made it seem cool again. To the, uh, the idea of a journalist uh, somehow hanging out with a president. Um, and I don't know, it just seems rather unethical to just sort of act as a PR arm for the president of the United States, something that Fox News was obviously rightfully criticized for doing during the Bush era. Um, and, you know, and Vice seems to be one of the most prominent examples of something that represents not just chumming up with the, uh, you know, with Obama and Biden, but also echoing a State Department sort of propaganda line. Um, but I'm personally concerned that the Biden administration will pick this up right where Obama left it off. I can't see Biden partying with Beyonce at the <laughs> White House, but I can sort of see his administration using someone like Kamala Harris to become that pop culture face of the administration, that hip face, um, getting to star in sketch comedy you know, bits with Samantha Bee and Stephen Colbert. So what are your general thoughts on Obama being able to tap into this sort of hip media model and, and what he was able to pull off? Do you see that as a significant development uh, in the larger front of media propaganda? Or do you just see it as something more, just an optical you know, style change? I think it was an important part of Obama's success. I mean, we, we forget that Obama's campaign won like PR awards. Wow. Um, that it was one of the most impressive uh, public relations efforts of 2008. Um, and let's, let's be honest, at, at least the character that we, we saw of Obama in media, Obama was cool. He was young, <laughs> he was hip, he knew what was going on in popular culture. It was a big shift from George W. Bush, who was like he did a, rich, a rich Connecticut kid pretending to be a cowboy. Um, and so it was a big, it was a kind of a big um, shift in, in that sense. But we also should remember, and this is kind of forgotten to, to history, Obama ran in the primary as more of a leftist. He ran to the left of Hillary Clinton. Now he totally didn't deliver on that, but he ran on like ending the wars mm -hmm. and, and he appealed to some like class rhetoric about um, wealth and income inequality. 
so there was also a, a capturing of kind of the imagination of making government something that serves the people. Um, of course, uh, both, uh, he, he wasn't able to deliver on those policies, uh, largely because, par partially because he didn't know how to, and partially because he was naive. Um, he lost a, a thousand seats during his administration for the Democratic Party. And by the end of it, being cool just wasn't enough. Um, people were frustrated. They were, they were, they were sick of it. But I, I do think, at least initially in that 2008 campaign, um, that was a major part of getting young people out. Obama was a lot more someone that um, they could um, kind of understand or identify with as compared to the Bush administration and what had uh, followed Obama or uh, preceded Obama. Well, I feel like it set us back because it, it was, again, like neutralizing the threat of some sort of mass revolt where people were out yeah. in the streets, you know, the largest movement since Vietnam of um, anti-war protesters opposing the Iraq war. People were up in arms about the torture program. Uh, I think it woke a lot of people up to, again, like the media complicity in selling war and manufacturing consent for all of these crimes that were being done in our name. And then you have Obama riding into office on the promise of hope and change, closing down Guantanamo, doing all these things, which he didn't deliver on any of them, even though he had a supermajority for the first two years. And I think it really like destroyed a, a lot of not only optimism for generations like my generation, even though I knew from the get-go because I saw the cabinet that he was building <laughs> that he was a phony. But I think a lot of people really, really wanted to believe that. And then it neutralized this whole movement. And I think the difference today is that Biden is such a fucking joke. You know, no one is going into this thinking that Biden is going to change anything. Like, in fact, that's his mantra, right? Nothing will fundamentally change. He's like proud of that. Um, so I, I think that there is a huge opening today in terms of restoring that kind of deeper political consciousness that's needed in order to galvanize and and start organizing, right? So we can actually figure out how we're going to take our power back in one way or the other. So I think that in a sense, like the Bernie Sanders movement and all these political uh, evolutions over the last two decades since the war on terror, I think it's finally we're in like a space that we can maybe do something outside of the political sphere and outside of electoralism. Um, and I think that going back to the Trump era, you know, public distrust in the media, of course, is at an all-time low, in part because of the warmongering, all of these things that we've been talking about this whole time. The vast majority of people no longer deem the mainstream press to be believable at all. Project Censored, the organization that you're a part of, Nolan, has pointed this out since its inception. I mean, the fact that corporate media only exists to serve those in power to neutralize any stories that threaten its advertising structure or its ownership. And this distrust really bred Trump's ability to exploit and weaponize that concept of fake news. I mean, sadly, he used it to label anything that wasn't sycophantic media coverage or press coverage of him, which perpetuated the notion that there's this vast liberal conspiracy instead of a corporate conspiracy, which really it is a corporate conspiracy. It's all about making money. You mentioned that it was good in part that Trump brought this term to the forefront because you've been talking about this be before Trump. You know, you've been talking about fake news. So in a sense, it made fake news a thing. It's been able to be a point of study. Um, but has it really helped media literacy? Because you have this danger of perpetuating this idea that alternative right-wing media outlets like Gateway Pundit, um, Infowars even, you know, are like good. I mean, maybe not Infowars anymore, but like 
You know what I'm saying is that there's this reflexive contrarianism where anything that's not the mainstream media is therefore like correct. And so you have this wide variety of alternative media that is actually dangerous because like you said before, it's really alternative media that is independently and grassroots funded, not funded by right-wing billionaires trying to seize this market. Yeah, not all. Yeah, good point. Not all independent media is equal in terms of uh, its veracity. Um, but yeah, it, it, I mean, you hit the narrative on the head. Um, and perhaps this answers Robbie's question earlier about fake news stories that people believe. Um there's a fake news story out there that Trump is some like aberration that came out of nowhere. And if he was voted out of office, he'll disappear and the problems associated with him are gone. Um, look, there, there's, you know, Trump is decades in the making. Uh, fake news, if you had said that in like 1950, that wouldn't resonate with the power it did in, in 2016. Trump was able to get away with it because most people realize that at least some, if not all of what they see in, in corporate media is false or misleading. And so he was able to weaponize that for his own purposes. And this is this has always been one of the um, things that Trump has done well. Trump will take a real weakness or um, like vulnerability with an institution or a person, and he will just exaggerate it um, as a way to distract from his own problems. And that's what he essentially did with the the news media. Um, now, as far as the positives from it, it you know. I've always been sort of part of Project Center. We, we were just like maligned from things like the New York Times or San Francisco Chronicle or, uh, you know, CBS and things like that. After Trump won, I actually started getting interviews <laughs> and asked to be brought in to talk to some of these folks <laughs> because they're like, so what are we, what are we missing here? Now, I, I don't think they've made any strides in those institutions, but it's kind of anecdotal of how there was a lot of people who at least started to question if that perhaps their dedication to singular outlets was problematic. And you know, I've been invited to a lot of schools and, and a lot of like teacher trainings where, where folks are hungry for this information. So in that way, it, it has been good. But to your, your other point, it has also been problematic. A lot of people now just say like, oh, well, then we just got to turn off corporate media and whatever the first website is that pops up, that's what I need to start using. It's like, no, that's not media literacy. Um, we still need to be critical even of independent and alternative outlets as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a point that gets lost on a lot of people, especially people might be entering into the media landscape and really engaging um, after or sort of post-Trump era um, is that alternative media Trump has somehow his message or his narrative has somehow managed to harness a large sector of that to varying degrees. But we haven't talked too much about Russiagate and sort of one of the main, you know, you could call it fake news stories of the last several years. It's not just Russiagate, it's sort of the incessant anti-Russian sort of tone and hyperbole that we were seeing in the media for so long it seems to have died down to some degree um, recently, but this wave of anti-Russian hysteria in the media seems to mark another big shift in the media landscape, sort of an active and coordinated response with national security officials, think tanks, big political donors to fight disinformation and fake news, um, which is sort of in a weird way has led to the biggest internet crackdown that I have ever seen. Um, and I've, you know, been using the internet since like 1994, and it does seem like this is a very, very over-response um, and a, a sort of an overcorrective measure that just doesn't seem to line up with 
any da- real danger that's posed by disinformation or whatever you want to call it. And it also additionally seems to be a way to selectively silence and create more chilling effects for people who want to explore alternative narratives. Because if you're stifling quote-unquote disinformation and deranking it and even demonetizing it on places like YouTube, then that means that YouTube creators will be more afraid to talk about certain subjects because they'll be concerned that they'll be perceived as being disinformation, even if they are coming at it from a good faith perspective. But how can one effectively fight against what's happening right now with all this sort of internet crackdown other than exiting out from social media and carving out your own media path separate from it what what solutions do you see and how do you feel about what's happening in response to all that well um i mean i feel i feel terrible about it i feel terrible as a supposed democratic people that we have abdicated our responsibility to these tech corporations to decide what we should and shouldn't be seen um that's kind of the short answer on that as far as you know solutions um you know, one of the one of the things I think we could really start to do is learn how to 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 talk to people we disagree with. And so, when we say um, you know aspects of quote unquote Russia Gate are, are false, I think spending the time to talk to people to define what Russia Gate is, what aspects we are saying are false, and what evidence we have to back those up. I know it's a pain in the ass. I know it's a lot of time, but if you don't get there, a lot of people have various def- different definitions of Russiagate. Um, I mean, like you, you just say like steel dossier and they look at you blindly <laughs> um, or, you know, that are they, I mean, like Joe Biden said in a speech that they that he perpetuated the bounty lie, right? That there was a bounty on killing yeah. US soldiers from Russia and, and things like that. So th- these things are out there. So I think spending some time with people to say like, look, I'm not a, I'm not a, a bad person who wants to see uh, U.S. soldiers getting killed or Donald Trump winning elections. Um, but I just have a commitment to truth. And here's what I'm hearing. And here's what evidence does or doesn't exist. I think also um, having those similar conversations about the intelligence community. Uh, we have kind of a knowledge bias. Um, a lot of people have no clue that our intelligence community has overthrown democratically elected leaders for decades and or that it's infiltrated progressive movements or that it's gone after folks like Dr. King trying to get him to commit suicide and, and things like this. And explaining that history is crucial because then you turn around and say, so these are the people you want to use as sources, anonymous or otherwise, to justify, um, you know, removing a president or censoring content online, having that sort of conversation. And then lastly, one about information in general you know, people in Russia and, and elements of the Russian government do perpetuate fake news, uh, as does our government, as do a ton of others, and it ends up online. Um, our own citizens perpetuate fake news. It ends up online. How do you really think you're going to stop all this? I mean, and that's the point I make in the book. It's ignorant to think we're going to eradicate fake news. It's been around throughout all of human history. Our best hope is to give people the skills uh, to delineate fact from fiction and you're not going to do that by creating arbitrary standards of what is and is not allowed to be published on these, these platforms. And so I think entering with none of those conversations, which are not, you know, hyper-partisan in any, any sense or, or polarized, is a much better way to approach it than sort of calling people names and labeling them and things like that, which is the way I've seen folks go about it in the last four or five years. One of the weird things, Nolan, is that it's gotten so bad recently um, after the election results of, you know, sort of finally come in with, 
you know, I guess one of the biggest examples is on Twitter where they're starting to just flag any tweets uh, that take the opinion that the election was stolen. I don't share that opinion, but it does seem like an overreaction, you know, a, a really drastic one um, to me to sort of relegate any of that to just sort of, I don't know if you would call it shadow banning, but to at least say, you know, put some disclaimer on it, implying it's disinformation. What are your, what are your thoughts on that development? I think, well, I think, again, I think all this stuff is, is wrong. Um, and part of the problem though, comes from the way we conceive these spaces. Uh, we think we as users treat these spaces like they're public spaces um, and they're not, they're private corporate spaces and these corporations can do whatever they want. And we've allowed the internet to become controlled by these um, companies. And now they're using that control as a PR mechanism to decide what we should think is true, what we should think is false. Um, Abby brought up earlier about how small and independent news outlets, whether they be conservative or progressive, are being um, marginalized by search engines. But now when you search for things, the first things that pop up are like the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. And as I illustrate in my book, these outlets have also produced fake news. So it, you have to do it on a piece by piece basis. You can't just, just choose outlets. And I think Twitter and these companies are having this knee jerk reaction where they say, well, if we just find the right outlets, we marginalize certain ones, we'll, we'll cut out the, the fake news problem. <laughs> that, that's really ignorant. And, and also sometimes things I mean, it change. just seems you know, so my, wrong. My wife's a, my wife's a scientist. Wrong. And like sometimes new scientific findings disprove previous mm. findings. So is that going to be considered yeah. fake if you discuss those things? Exactly. Like, is that a lie? You know, and, and those kinds of things. Right. And I mean, it's as much as I agree with you about the need to have complex conversations that are hearing out the other side and trying to make them understand your point, Twitter has kind of ruined the discourse in terms of you literally cannot do that and everyone kind of devolves into name calling and such. Um, you've <laughs> talked about this technocratic utopian mindset that, you know, we put our faith in institutions and technocrats to save us from the problem of fake news. And you can look at something like Wikipedia as this end-all be-all solution of the democratization of like, you just pull all of your information and it'll just, the truth will float to the surface, which is totally absurd and not reality at all because you have the same forces manipulating something like that. You know, it's the people who are the most um, prolific users on Wikipedia. And those people have also kind of odd, perplexing ties, you know, like Philip Cross and things like that. So, and then you have like that other guy who's, who literally is like an ICE agent who's edited the most Wikipedia entries out of, of all time. You know, he's been interviewed. We show him in the documentary. Just really, <laughs> really fascinating stuff there. But it goes back to this whole intersection of digital surveillance, data mining, building these psychological profiles that you were talking about in the age of surveillance and data mining with these companies that have literally curated our reality um, from everything from products to news consumption, which also makes it harder to have these conversations, Nolan, and to get the other perspectives because we're living in such insular bubbles um, of echo chambers of our own thoughts basically being broadcasted back to us. I know they call themselves social media, but in the sort of textbook definition, there's nothing really social about social media. There's not reciprocity. There's not sort of this, um, you know, sacred agreed upon space. Uh, there's nothing really social about social media. And so we should remember that, like, 
if you really think, um, or if you really care about issues of say, say like racial justice or gender equity, I would argue that social media does not give those issues the respect they deserve in terms of what's possible in communicating about them. Um, these, you know, the, these knee-jerk reactions, this pressure to put things on, this public performative space, uh, you know, those are serious issues that require a serious approach and, and social media is not um, serious in, in, in that sense. Um, and then, you know, closely related, we really need to get out of this, uh, knee jerk reaction that everything just needs more technology. Uh, you know, you, you bring up Wikipedia, there's so many new, like, uh, corporate funded ideas of how to solve <laughs> fake news where now you'll let users vote on whether or not the information is true. And, you know, as I put point out in the book, if we all kind of agree that people struggle to determine what's true from what's false, how is having them vote on whether or not something is true or false going to solve that problem? Um, right. You know, so there's right. these, but so getting more tech doesn't really make sense. And sourcing um, from in, mainstream in media. It's like you can't prove anything on Wikipedia unless you have a mainstream media source. <laughs> Ex exactly. And given their, their history, um, there, there's a litany of, of problems with that. So I, I think that we need to kind of think bigger about the issue and accept the fact that fake news has been around forever. It's going to be around forever. Um, how do we learn to live with it responsibly is a more important question. Yeah. And we live in these mass hallucinations. Several divergent realities now exist where tens of millions of people, like my brother said, think Donald Trump won the election. You have the Russia Gators, you have the QAnon true believers. These ideas are not going anywhere. They're going to continue to fester. They're going to continue to double down. Um, where do you see this going if we don't become more media literate as a society and narrow down some actual tools that people can use and resources that they can use to become more media literate and take their power back in this society? Absolutely. Yeah, I don't want to be too... Um you know, dark about it, but, uh, you know, your, your, your democracy hangs in the, in the balance. Um, if the majority or even a significant portion of the population believes absolute falsehoods, um, that, you know, coupled with the idea that people don't trust the outcome of elections, this was my whole problem with that, you know, stupid label of democracies on the ballot. First of all, democracy is on the ballot in every <laughs> election and it's on, it's on, it should be on our agenda every single day. I don't know why 2020 was special. Um, but democracy, we've never physically, as a nation, each one of us counted all the results. We always kind of trust them more or less. So when you have a significant portion that doesn't trust them, and if they um, act accordingly, then you don't really have a democracy. And that's something I think people need to, to understand about this. Um, you, we have to kind of give a transparent process that people trust in um, to have a democracy in that sense. Um, as far as, uh, you know, tools and, and resources, uh, Project Sensor does some great work in comparing, um, you know, corporate versus independent style of reporting. Um, I kind of like the chart on all sides as far as giving you an idea of kind of left versus right. Um, so you can kind of compare ideological differences, which I think are helpful for folks. Um, and then um, my book, I have a, a fake news detection kit which I think is helpful as well, which is there's a series of, of questions you should ask anytime you approach um, content. And, and it begins with reminding yourself of why you approach content. Don't approach content to uh, laugh at a headline or to share online so you can virtue signal to your friends. Instead, you know, approach content to be more informed as a citizen and um, be self-reflective about your own biases. Now, they 
um, draw your attention to content and make you believe content. And then ask questions about who's the publisher, who's the author, um, what are the sources, what is the message they're sending, what uh, personalities and identities are missing, which ones are privileged. Um, and then at the most basic sense, I'd tell people, uh, you should always determine whether or not what you're, the content um, you're enacting with is journalism. Are they, do they have multiple sources? Are they vetted sources? Uh, does it serve the public good? Is it newsworthy? Does it follow a code of ethics? If the answer is no, uh, you should probably cut that from your media diet, uh, at least if you care about democracy. Yeah, and even though it could be overwhelming for people to be listening to this and say, well, I don't have the time, dude. I'm working two jobs. We don't have our stimulus yet. How the fuck am I supposed to be researching every source that I'm reading to get my news intake? But I think it, it is an empowering thing. It's a, a beautiful thing. And I, you know, there's no looking back. Once you see the truth, there's no way to unsee it. And um, I'm very grateful that I'm in the world of alternative media. So if there's anyone out there who just comes across this podcast and um, feels overwhelmed, don't, you know, it, it's, it's just a matter of also shutting off Twitter and not being overwhelmed with like the inundation of things that aren't necessary. You know, like you said, like news used to be local. There's not really much we can do, which may run contrary to my whole Empire Files thing, but there's really nothing we can do about things that are outside of our control, right? Um, so maybe just scaling it down, you know, and, and and maybe that would be less overwhelming. But Nolan, where can people get your books? Where can people learn more about your work and follow you? Yeah, you can get copies of, the, you can get copies of uh, the Anatomy of Fake News at projectcensored.org or University of California Press. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Nolan underscore Higdon. And uh, yeah, thank you very much, Abby and Robbie. This has been a pleasure. I appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Nolan. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Nolan, for coming on. This is a very interesting discussion. Hi. This is Robbie again. If you become a Patreon subscriber of Media Roots Radio at patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio for as little as $5 a month. And right now we are doing a long form history podcast series called the Freemasonic History of the United States. Once a month bonus episode. You can get access to it by subscribing to our $5 Patreon tier. 